good morning to everybody. Again, it's good to see uh, you, Brother Freddie, and Miss Joe back again. Today's scripture reading is going to come about the book of Revelation. We're in uh, chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 20 today. Revelation 1, verse 9 through 20. So would you, find it? would you please stand for reading God's word? Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have, the de- I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars as you see in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, again, we come before your throne of grace. Lord, seeking seeking grace, help in time of need. Lord, we, we need your power enabling us to understand as we move through this book and in the passage we're looking at today, Lord, we need your, your help. We pray, open our understanding. Lord, help us to Hold fast to the things that are good and true here and reject the temptations to get sidelined. Lord, reveal, make known, just as this uh, book suggests, make known to us Your glory through Your Word printed on these pages by Your Spirit, Father. Use the truth that we'll be looking at and discussing and considering, use it to set our sights on you, set our vision on the right object. Lord, for our own good strength and endurance in this world, and so that you are honored and glorified through your people. 
And all of these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If um, if you were standing on the banks of a sea and a way opened up before you, the waters split, even made dry ground, but then you've got a wall of water on each side of you that, if it collapses, would uh, easily drown you, would you walk through? Would you walk through if, if there's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of, of fire by night leading the way? Would you go through the wilderness, a wilderness, where there are no cracker barrels, no pilots, And you didn't even have a change of clothes, not even an extra pair of shoes. Not really knowing where you're going, how long it's going to take to get there. Would you do that? Would you do that if you were being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? The manifest presence of God leading the way. Would you disobey a civil order to cease praying even if it meant being thrown into a fiery furnace or cast into a den of hungry lions? Would you do that? I was thinking about the passage we're looking at today and I was reminded of... of, um, a couple things, of course, we're going to point out as we go through here, but I was also reminded of Jesus' words in the Great Commission where He tells us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that He has commanded us. He gives that, that mandate, which we call the Great Commission, and then he ends it with this statement. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The other circumstances that I was describing, of course, you recognize from the Old Testament. And God, at least in some of those cases, uh, with the children of Israel, um, would, would manifest in a visible form His presence. Led them through uh, a sea that would swallow them up if it weren't for His power. Led them through a wilderness where surely they would have perished uh, quickly and died, except that He was not only leading them in the way, He was also making sure their shoes didn't even wear out and their clothes didn't wear out and was supplying for them daily bread from heaven. And then, of course, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were cast into the fire... um, there was, we're not told that there was any visible um, 
manifestation of God's presence. But once they were in, there was one. <laughs> even, even Nebuchadnezzar saw it, and he said, didn't, you know, you can just kind of see him holding his fingers up, you know. Didn't, didn't, we, uh, didn't we cast three men into the fire? I see four. And they're not even being hurt. They're walking around, not even being hurt. And one is like one of the sons of God, of the gods. And, of course, Daniel was cast into the lion's den. And again, uh, no testimony of a visible manifestation, but God closed the mouths of those lions. And Daniel was safe. Now, we don't have in our day a pillar of of a cloud by day leading us. And we don't have a pillar of fire by night. But i tell you what we do have, that they had, that we still have, God's promise. His Word. His Word. And He's not a man that He should lie. He's not like us in that way. He cannot cannot lie. He cannot go back on His Word. It is a sure foundation. A rock to stand on, to build on. And so when Jesus gives a command, go into all the world, preach the Gospel, or the way it's worded in Matthew, go make disciples of all nations. And lo, the old King James says, which really it's low and high, but <laughs> Lo, I'm with you always, he says, even to the end of the age. And that, by the way, doesn't mean that there's a there's a point of time coming at the end of the age where he's going to forsake us. No, it just means that's a way of saying, I'm I'm never going to forsake you. I'm I'm with you all the way through until I get you home to glory. And that's a promise for them, not only those who were standing there that day and heard it, but for us as well. He's with us. He's with us. One of the and very, very simple truth here that I, that I want us to glean as the main point from this today, and that is that Jesus is in the midst of His churches as we suffer in this world. Now, just by way of reminder, remember that this book, the Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, was given to the church as assurance, a promise, if you will. I mean, this is, as we were just saying, this is God's Word. This is another, another um, expression of that same truth. I am with you always to the end of the age. When... When Jesus said that to His disciples the day that He gave the Great Commission, He, he was not blind to the facts that we're going to read about in this book. The facts about tribulation, persecution of the church, the wrath of God being poured out on the world. And by the way, I'm not I'm getting ahead of myself here, but, but I, I'm not one who believes that the church is going to be raptured out of here I, I, prior to these things. I know that's common teaching today. It's the most common teaching out there regarding these 
these events, but I do not find it in the Scripture. If we find it as we go along, we'll point it out. All right? <laughs> but to date, I do not find that in the Scripture. Jesus said to believers in the world, you have tribulation. All right? And I think you'll see as we move through here that, that um, believers are here, present. Present. Now, one reason I think that teaching is so popular, the, the idea that the church is going to leave here um, before the, the real trouble comes, um, and by the way, it's so popular that it sold millions of books and, and um, study Bibles geared along those lines and movies that, that portray those events in that way. Uh, one reason I think that is so that idea is so popular is because of our desire to escape trouble. And and let me just say that um, I totally understand that. I mean, I'm not up here pointing fingers and saying, you know, those bunch of wimps. That's why they buy into all that. Oh no, I totally understand the desire to escape trouble. And I, and I sympathize with everybody who wants to do that. Um, and yet, I think the truth of it is, in fact, I know this from reading the Word, we, we, we have trouble in this world. In fact, I think you'd have, you'd have trouble selling that theology to uh, people that were abducted by ISIS a couple of weeks ago. I mean, try to tell them there's, you know, the tribulation's down the road somewhere and they're not going to have to be a part of it. Are saints down through the centuries who have been burned at the stake, crucified, stoned to death, drowned, lost families, homes, possessions. You'd have a probably have a hard time selling that theology to them. And so we, we consider these things and we think well, if it's true that, we, that we're going we're to experience these things in this world, how in the world, no pun intended there, but how, how in the world are we going to do it? How are we going to stand under these kinds of circumstances? And the answer is found in that promise that Jesus gave. He, he wasn't promising the disciples and you and I trouble-free life. What he was promising is to be with us in the midst of all of it. And that's why he was so emphatic, I think. I'm, I'm with you to the end of the age. Now let's go back to verse 9 and keep, keep that in mind. And again, the main point is just this. Jesus is in the midst of his church, or you could say churches because they include all of the local church. He's in the midst, and I will explain that momentarily. But Jesus is in the midst of his churches as we suffer in this world, or as we suffer tribulation in this world, however you want to word it. Verse 9. Remember, this is the Apostle John, who, by the way, was no stranger to persecution. You're going to see in this verse he's, he, there's evidence of it. I, John, your brother and partner in what? The tribulation. That word partner is just the idea of, of, of sharer, fellow participator, partner. I'm with you in this, John says. I'm, ex- I'm experiencing with you the tribulation. 
I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. And that's actually one word in the Greek. It's just endurance, endurance. Um, but they kind of, you know, um, um, put a little emphasis on it here or expound the, uh, the uh, help, help with expounding the meaning of it by using uh, the term patient endurance that are in Jesus. In other words, all of these things, he's, he's not saying tribulation or endure in the kingdom we would see, of course, as a positive thing, but tribulation or having to endure. He's not saying that's for those people outside of Christ. These are things that are associated with Jesus. The, the tribulation, the kingdom, which, of course, we, we can amen that one quickly, and the patient endurance. And when you think about endurance or patient endurance, what do you, what do you picture in your mind? I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't conjure up pleasant images, does it? Like, oh man, I endured laying on the recliner yesterday. <laughs> Thought it was never going to end. No, I mean, I know, that's not how we think about that. So that's not, talk, that's not referring to something pleasant. It, it, it connotes hardship, patient endurance. Literally, the term is to, to stand under. I mean, you're, 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 you're standing under circumstances. That's, there's an, an, an oppressive sense where you've got to um, be under them and, and be um, subject to them to some degree. And yet, you, you patiently endure. You move through them. Peter um, says you've... Uh, or James, rather, says you've heard of the... The old King James says patience, but it's the same word here. You've heard of the patience of Job. It's talking about endurance. It's not, it's, it's not talking about um, patience in the sense that we think of patience. Like he was just relaxed and thinking, ah, you know, it's only temporary. It'll all, <laughs> it'll all work out. One... one I've, I've, I can't even remember who it was, but one writer said that. said, yes, we've heard of the patience of Job, and we've heard of the impatience of Job, too. And you do if you read the book. He wasn't very patient in the sense we use the term. But he endured. He endured by the grace of God. That's what John's talking about. Your, your, your partner, your fellow participator in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the endurance that are in Jesus, that are associated with Jesus. In other words, if, if you're immersed in Jesus Christ, you're, you're, you're immersed in, the, in, in uh, Christ so much so that He's your life. So you say like Paul, for me to live is Christ, then there are things associated with that. And you see that in Paul's life, don't you? For me to live is Christ. Well, let's, let's take a look at Paul's life. And what do we see? Trouble. In fact, we see all three of these things. Tribulation. The kingdom. Paul, gloriously, Paul was, was walking in the reality of being a, a, a child of the king and a subject in the kingdom of God even while he was in the midst of tribulation and while he was having to exercise patient endurance. So these things are associated with Jesus. And John says, here's some of his testimony. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know what he's saying? And we have this according to church history too. 
um, uh, church uh, tradition. He, he wasn't there on vacation, in other words. He was, you know, I, I, I took a, a, a cruise ship down here, and I'm, I'm hanging out, doing a little writing while I have some free time. No, it wasn't that kind of deal. It was exile. Why? Because he was a Christian. Because he was testifying concerning the gospel. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God. A way of referencing the gospel. And the testimony of Jesus Christ. John, remember that? We talked about that last week, week four. John was giving testimony of the testimony of Jesus. As King of kings and Lord of lords. And so... um, They kindly sent him on a little um, vacation for that, all right? Exiled him. He's suffering for the cause of Christ. And that's why he calls himself a fellow participator or partner or sharer in the tribulation and in endurance. I was in the Spirit. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I think you could probably put that, you know, if we're we're just thinking about those three things back in verse 9, tribulation, kingdom, patient endurance. You could probably put that one under the second one, right? The kingdom. In other words, while he's living in tribulation and having to exercise endurance, experiencing endurance by the grace of God in trouble, nevertheless, he's living in this world as a children, as a child of the kingdom. And so, so how do you find him in Patmos? In the Spirit. In the Spirit. Because he's not alone. And because, well, he is alone, probably humanly speaking, but, but there's the Lord with him, just as he promised. And John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, I'm going to just go through a few things here, and then we'll come back and discuss it a little bit. But I want to, I want to pick up on some of the things he says and, and some of the imagery and just try, try to give some explanations here. Um, first of all, what does in the Spirit mean? Well, typically it's thought of as meaning an, uh, like an ecstatic state. In other words, he's not using... This and I think this is correct. He, he's not using this in the same way Paul does in Romans. When when Paul talks about being in the Spirit in Romans, he's just meaning being a Christian. In other words, you're either in the flesh, which Paul uses that to to refer to being lost, or you're in the Spirit. Being in the Spirit doesn't mean a super saint. It just means a saint. You're, you know, you're, if you're in the Spirit, you're, that's, that's a way of talking about being saved. And if you're in the flesh, that's a way of talking about being lost. And it's one or the other. There's not, a, there's not an in-between and there's not a back and forth. You know, I, yesterday I was in the Spirit. This morning I woke up in the flesh and it's been rough. Uh, hopefully I'll be back in the Spirit tomorrow. No, it doesn't work that way. Paul says, you're in the Spirit if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. But John's using this differently. And so when he says in the Spirit, uh, I, I think he's talking about the experience he's having here. So yes, he's talking about an ecstatic state, which was common um, uh, for uh, prophets, you know, when, when receiving prophetic utterance from the Lord. So, so I mean, he's, this is not his uh, um, normal state, you might say. In other words, you know, he's, he's, he's being, something's going on here. God is showing him, uh, uh, giving him revelation, showing him visions of things to come. So, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and usually people take um, that expression, on the Lord's Day, uh, to refer to Sunday, uh, the day of Christian worship. 
I think, you know, there's some credence to that, but, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not going to uh, be as emphatic about it as, as a lot of people are. I just don't think we're that sure. But, um, but so why would they call it the Lord's Day? Well, because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, supposedly, you know, that, that, that came to be a way of, of referring to the first day of the week when Christians would gather together for corporate worship, the Lord's Day. So, if that's the case, then, then he's talking about Sunday, the first day of the week. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, we're starting to get into the, some of the, injury, uh, the imagery here, so, so let, this, let this paint pictures in your mind. I mean, I think this is why God's given them to us. Um, let, let this, you know, I don't, we don't want to get, you know, sidetracked on, on a lot of things that don't matter. But, nevertheless, you know, try to, let's try to get the feel for it here as, as John gives it to us by the Holy Spirit. So I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, write what you, what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So, um, so John is, we're, we're starting to see this, where John is describing things that are difficult to describe. You know, he's seeing God is opening up his eyes to some things that are happening and that are going to happen and uh, giving him revelation. And so he's seeing things play out um, in heaven and, and so forth and, and, uh, and things happening on the earth that he's never seen before. So he's, he's trying to describe them in ways that his readers can understand. So it's not always obvious what exactly he's talking about, but still you can, you know, you can get the picture, you get some sense. So we understand, for example, a loud voice, but then he says, like a trumpet. So perhaps he, he means by that is just alarming in the sense, you know, uh, a few weeks ago we were in Joel, and Joel says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm. I think that's kind of the, the, the picture here. In other words, it was, a, it was a tension getting. It was loud, and it was like, like, a, like a trumpet blasting, announcing uh, the arrival of a king. Are, are, an, are making a, a, a call to, to battle in uh, one of the uh, Hobbit movies, and I get them all confused now, but because um, we've watched them and we've also watched them out of order, so I don't, you know, I get them all confused. Um, but <laughs> I think it's, uh, and Jordan can help me here, but I think it's in, in, in um, is it Gondor or Rohan where they, where they blow the big trumpet? Oh, Helm's Deep. Okay, see, I'm saying corrected. Helm's Deep. Well, anyway, they're they're protecting this little city kingdom called Helm's Deep. And of course, there's a lot of trumpet blowing going on in the movie in different different, you know, but usually one they're holding. But in this one, they have this huge horn that you know goes down the side of a wall, and um, the the uh, the dwarf blows it, and and, it, and it's just you know this earth shaking kind of effect. It's really low, like a tuba sound, you know, and and. Uh, and, and whatever it's it's a call for everybody to prepare for battle, and of course it's supposed to at the same time send shivers down the spine of the enemy, right? I think that's kind of the picture here: a loud voice like a trumpet, because that is what they used them for in those days. And then the voice was saying something to John: write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Remember, we talked about this last week. I, these are seven literal historical churches. He's going to name them here. 
and we're going to see letters written to each one of them. But I, but I think at the same time, it is uh, representative, the, the number seven just being a, a number uh, denoting uh, fullness. So, so at the same time, it's a, it's a way of, of, uh, of representing the whole church, the whole body of Christ, past, present, and future, all of the saints. So these things that He is giving to the seven churches in Asia are also for you and me, is the bottom line. That's what I'm saying. They're also for us. So the voice says, write what you see in a book and send it. So he's, so he's got a couple of commands there, imperatives. Write and send it. And write what? Write what you see. See, John is still testifying. He's being, being a witness. He's, he's called to be a witness, just like you and I. Write what you see in a book. Send it to the seven churches. Here's, here are the names. Seven literal congregations. Uh, these are cities. Ephesus, Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and that's not the one in Pennsylvania, by the way, uh, and to Laodicea. Now, now these are seven cities in um, the ancient Roman province of Asia, which is today is in modern Turkey. All right, so um, he's writing to those seven congregations, the saints in each one of these. We'll see more of that as we go. In verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice... This is, this is the real voice. I mean, you've heard the show, The Voice. Well, this is the voice. The voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, again, um, get the pictures as we move through here, and we'll come back and discuss them a little bit. But he says, I heard the voice. He's speaking to me. In verse 12, turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, where is this one who is like a son of man? Where does John see him? He sees him in the midst of the lampstands, right? And that word um, sometimes is translated among, you know, that kind of thing, among, in the midst of. So, So that's the picture. This, this one like the Son of Man is, is, it's just like if I walked out in the center of the aisle there and said, I'm in the midst of the congregation at Fillmore. Well, he's in the midst of these seven churches. Which again, I'm, I'm saying we should take to represent the, the totality of the church, the entirety of the church. So he's in the midst of these congregations. And then here's his description of him. He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, that, that's typical... John doesn't tell us specifically what these things represent, but those th- those things are typical of like priestly garments and uh, uh, also of royalty. So, so you've you've probably got a, a mixture here uh, representing um, Jesus's kingship. In other words, representing his rule and his uh, his uh, office as mediator so he's he's king and priest and keep that in mind too he because Jesus holds all three of those offices prophet king and priest all right what he's doing right here is giving prophecy right he's 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 relating prophecy and uh and then he's also re- making himself known as king of kings and lord of lords and uh, as the one who uh John says Gave himself for our sins. You look back in verse, in verse five. 
to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. So by His blood, by His death, He freed us from our sins. There's the, the priest, um, priestly function uh, as our high priest offering sacrifice for our sins. Uh, and of course, which sacrifice was Him Himself. So that's probably the picture here uh, with the long robe and the golden sash on His chest. And then He says, verse 14, "...the hairs of His head were white like white wool like snow." Um, so, um, just bright white, probably representing purity, holiness, righteousness. Uh, sometimes the saints are spoken of as being in white robes, so uh, seemingly representing the righteousness of God, right, that we are clothed with. So, that's probably what that's representing here. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, probably representing judgment. Our God is a consuming fire, the Old Testament says, and the writer of Hebrews quotes it. Um, the New Testament speaks of uh, judgment by fire. Remember John said, the, John the Baptist, John the baptizer, he said, he said I'm, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one coming after me who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that's talking about judgment. In other words... Jesus, the Messiah, is coming, and He will baptize some with the Holy Spirit, and some He will baptize with fire, judgment. That's probably the, the idea here. His, uh, his eyes were like a flame of fire. So He's coming, and we've already talked about that. He's pictured as coming, and He's coming in judgment. And His feet were like burnished bronze, perhaps representing strength, refined in a furnace. And you know what? We're here we are talking about tribulation and trouble, hardships and all. You know what? Jesus has been there ahead of us. <laughs> we're we're laying emphasis today on the fact that he's with us in it, but he's also been there ahead of us. Refined by fire. He's been through it more more so than than you and I will ever experience. So his, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roaring of many waters. I've always loved that depiction. I've, I've, I've never been to uh, Niagara Falls. Now, I've heard the sound is uh, deafening, um, just loud. But I have, you know, like I've been to the ocean, and, and, and you, you know, the water just, it, it, that much power and that much movement um, in water makes some noise. It makes some noise. So, so you can just kind of imagine that. That's how his voice was, like, like the sound of many waters, um, probably just representing, again, uh, authority, strength, and you know, power, authority. In his right hand, here we go. This is going to help us with our main point. Verse 16, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, well, I'll come back to the seven stars momentarily, but let me say again as part of uh, his description, um, what, what would the two-edged sword represent here that's coming from his mouth? The Word of God, right? We don't have to do much guessing on that or, or too much speculating. Um, in fact, we're going to see later that that's how he will uh, slay his enemies with, with, with the two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. The Word of God. And, uh, and of course, we're told that uh, that same imagery is used in... in uh, in Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So, so this is the weapon that he carries 
by which He brings the nations into um, submission to Himself, one way or another. So, in His right hand He held seven stars, from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Remember when Moses came down off the mountain and his face shone because, uh, because he, he had been there communing with God. And so he comes down from the mountain. <laughs> it's like, like an afterglow, you know. He left the presence of God and his, his face is reflecting um, the glory of God. Obviously, in a very, very small degree. But for human beings, it was enough that you know, people couldn't look at him. And they said, Moses, you've got you to cover your face. I've, I've had that reaction, but it wasn't because of the glory of God. But um, that's another story. But they, Moses, you've got to cover your face. He was shining with the glory of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, Jesus uh, is the fullness of that phenomenon. I mean, he's, he is... He is the express uh, image of God and glory of God. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, sometimes we, we want to pray like Moses and say, Lord, show me your glory. Uh, well, here's where it can be found. In the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, look on Jesus. Get, get, our, get our eyes focused on Him, and that's where we'll see the glory of God. And, and He is beaming with the glory of God because he, he is not simply reflecting it. It is, it is inherent with Him. It is emanating from Him. He is the glorious One. And so His face was like the sun shining in full strength. It wasn't like, like Moses, you know, kind of a... a I hate to use the word dim because the the people couldn't stand it, but still, compared to the reality of God's glory, it was a dim reflection. But no, here it's shining like the sun in full strength. The glory of God just emanating from His face. And John says in verse 17, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. Well, what would you do? You hear a lot of people claim that they've seen Christ. I don't think I've ever heard one. I, I don't recall ever hearing someone say that and give a description like this and say, you know what, I just fell at His feet like a dead man. But that's what we see in Scripture. <laughs> when somebody really saw the glorified Christ. But He laid His right hand on me. Catch this now. Here's John persecuted alone on the island of Patmos, persecuted for testifying of the gospel. He laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. You see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is setting himself above everything else, above all temporary circumstances, that we may be found in, above all kingdoms, rule, and authority. In fact, He's setting Himself above all that we know in terms of space and time. 
I am the first and the last and the living one. That is, I died, he says. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. We, we don't have time to dig into that this morning, and we may come back to the idea later, but um, that is such an amazing statement. Because I am the first and the last. What he's doing there, that, he's speaking of divinity. In other words, that's a way of saying I'm God. I'm God. I'm the first and the last. Everything else has a beginning, right? And goes through a period of time and that's it. It's over. But it's one in a series. I, mean, I don't care if you're talking about people or if you're talking about nations, kingdoms, rule and authority. We were just one in a series. United States of America. We love this country, but you know what? We're just one. In a series, the Lord says we're, we're less than nothing. That's what He says. That's how He thinks about the nations. A lot of times we, we think of ourselves as being all exalted, but the Lord says, no, the nations are less than nothing in my sight. And I don't know how you measure less than nothing. Uh, it's hard enough to measure nothing. You can't, can't do it. Um, but that's how insignificant we are. But Jesus is the, the first and the last. He's not one in a series. He's the, the, the full spectrum from the beginning to the ending. So while others come and go, He's always been and He remains, is the picture. And then, why, why, why is that so amazing? Because the rest of the statement, I'm the living one, I died. Now wait a minute. You're the first and the last and, let, and yet you died. And this is the risen Christ who took on humanity, came to earth to die for our sins. He took on uh, the form of a man, that is, He became, literally became a man, lived and died. He didn't fall asleep on the cross and wake up three days later in the tomb. He didn't leave the body on the cross. No, that was God the eternal God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the living one, I died, he says. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What in the world is that? Well, again, he's setting himself up above everything else. He wants us to have a right view of him, a right um, understanding of him, put him in proper perspective, so, you know, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm alive forevermore, I'm the living one, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, if, if you're undergoing persecution and your life is under constant threat, you can begin to think that these people that are pointing a gun in my face or threatening me with a guillotine or a sword or whatever it is, have the power of death. And so Jesus is reminding us, no... I have the keys to death and Hades. Keys representing, just like he has the keys to the kingdom, right? And, he, and, and, uh, uh, and commits that to the church in, in Matthew 16. It, it, they represent an entrance way. And there's no entrance without the keys. So Jesus says, I have the keys to death and Hades. Not Satan. Satan doesn't have the keys. Not man. 
say, well, I've, I've heard of people getting killed, even believers getting killed by other people. Yes, but that's because it was time. In other words, the Lord was behind that. And it was their time to go. He and He alone has the keys to death and Hades, the place of the dead. Right therefore. <laughs> See what He's saying? Based on who I am, I'm fixing to tell you a lot of things. So, here's who I am. Right therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Things you've seen, and those things that are, things that are happening now, and those things that are to take place after this. Write these things, Jesus says to John. Now, listen to this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches. Now, now quickly, as we close here, there, there is um, some debate over what the seven stars represent here. We, I, I'm, I'm telling you that just, just to say that we don't know for certain. Um, some people speculate that the seven stars here represent um, uh, pastors of the seven churches um, or possibly just the messenger who is taking this message to them or maybe some angelic being who is given charge over you know, the individual congregation in some sense. Um, we, we don't know is the bottom line. We don't know. I tend to think that it has something to do with the, the, the human, uh, human aspect messenger carrying the message and, and uh, because sometimes that's the way we're referred to uh, in the scripture as messengers um, so that term angel that's that's what that is sometimes it's angelos and sometimes it's translated messenger the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches so it may just mean human messengers like uh, like pastor or perhaps somebody bringing the message to them um, we don't know we don't know for sure but we know this, whoever it is, Jesus has them in his right hand. I mean, that's, that's the imagery here. He's, he's, he's got them. Seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches. In verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. That's the seven stars from the seven churches. He's got them in his right hand. And then, this we don't have to speculate about, the rest of the verse, verse 20, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Or you can translate it this way, the seven lampstands are the seven congregations. That is, the congregation at Ephesus, the congregation at Smyrna, the congregation at Pergamum, the congregation at Thyatira, the congregation at Sardis, the congregation at Philadelphia, and the congregation at Laodicea. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches. That is crystal clear. John tells us that. Jesus um, it makes that known, and John passes it on to us. The seven lampstands are the seven congregations. Now, why is that significant? Because he's, he's sending this message, the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ to the seven churches. That's who it's addressed to. We've seen that repeatedly already. See it in verse 4. John 
to the seven churches, right? We saw it again in verse, uh, what verse is that? Verse 10, uh, verse 11, write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches, and then there are going to be seven actual individual letters sent to each church. But it's also significant, I'm going to say again, because that, that is representative of the church in its entirety. So, in other words, this, this revelation is, has come to you and I. I'm going to say it's coming to you, you and I. It has come to you and I as well in the form that we have it right here. And it's for us. This is not just something that we can... Okay, this is what Jesus said to seven churches 2,000 years ago, and it has no relevance for us. No, it, it, we are address ease. It's for us as well. So here's what I want us to get. Again, really a simple, simple point. And I said it earlier, Jesus is in the midst of the churches, or you could use the term congregation. Jesus is in the midst of his congregations as we suffer tribulation in this world. Remember Matthew 28? Go, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and... I'm with you. I'm with you to the end of the age. And where is he found in the vision? Verse 12, I turned to see a voice, the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. That's Jesus. That's the glorified Christ that he goes on to describe. And where is he? In the midst of the lampstands. Who are the lampstands? The congregations. The congregations. In other words, he's right in in time of tribulation. He is right in the midst of his people. Would you walk through a wilderness if you were being led by a pillar of, of cloud by day? And fire by night. Say, well, yeah, man, that would be, I mean, you know, that'd be a miracle. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I'd follow that. Well, would you do it just on His Word? I am with you even to the end of the age. And when He, when he, when he pulls back the curtains of heaven for John to, to see... He's in the midst of His churches while they suffer. Would you stand, please? We've got the prison this afternoon, so we appreciate y'all praying for us as we go out there. And, uh, and we'll just dismiss with a word of prayer. Brother Freddie, you mind leading us in a word of prayer?